my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg and I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa and we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder and always real conversations straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke and people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or hey, even an Aperol spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart radio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome. You are listening to another episode of the Mark Moss Show, where we talk about the decentralized revolution. Of course, we're talking about the way the world is changing politics, finance, and of course, that's technology driving it. We're talking about the decentralized revolution, and we are talking about Bitcoin, of course, each and every week. I'm coming to you from Miami, Florida, where I'm here for the Bitcoin Conference 2022. About 40,000 people expected to be here uh, for the Bitcoin Conference. It has really grown into something big. It's been pretty amazing to watch it. Uh, for a while, and I am joined in the studio today with Austin Hill. Austin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, Austin has been around um, to, in, in the Bitcoin space for a really long time, and so I've been around a long time, not as long as him, and it's, uh, boy, it's grown quite a bit, hasn't it? <laughs> it's every day I wake up and I'm just, you know, 
kind of live in gratitude in the sense that, you know, there's such an active community. There's so many people lending their hand to creating the change in the world that I think we all want to see. Yeah. And, you know, it's one person trying to change the world. You know, the old adage, give me a lever long, large enough and I can move the world. Yeah, yeah. I don't know anyone who has, you know, the weight or the kind of density of intensity to do the change that the community is yeah. actually doing yeah. together. Let's uh, let's talk about, uh, you know, one thing that I, I get frustrated with people a lot is that um, they're like, oh, Bitcoin can never be the, you know, reserve currency. It can never be the medium of exchange. It can never be whatever, whatever, fill in the blank, right? And it's like, um, just because it's not that today doesn't mean it can't grow into that eventually. It's like if I saw like a little oak tree that was this big, and like, ah, oh, that would never grow big. It's like, well, it is an oak tree, right? So let's talk about that. I was at a... I was at a at the at the Trammel Venture Partners uh, um, fund yesterday meeting, and there was uh, Trammel and uh, Lop Jameson Lop were talking, and they're talking about the early days of uh, of the Bitcoin message board and the, and the the faucets turning on and all the Bitcoin coming out of the faucets, people just throwing around thousands of Bitcoin at a time. Um, there was really no market for them. So, is that where you were in those early stages, or where'd you come in at? Um, well, I had a couple of exposures to Bitcoin. Um, a lot of my work was pre-Bitcoin. Okay. So back in 1997, I created a company called Zero Knowledge Systems. Yeah. Which was a cypherpunk research lab. And we employed, we had 280 employees, including a large percentage. 280 yeah. at that time. Yeah. Now, you said cypherpunk, so a lot of listeners may not understand what that is. So what, what was the cypherpunk? Um, so the cypherpunks thing? was a kind of ad hoc group that create was created... Right around the time that uh, the FBI raided a bunch of hackers okay. in something called Operation Sun Devil. Where they Sun Devil? Sun Devil. Oh, Sun Devil. Okay. Where they essentially raided a bunch of teenage hackers and they barged in and treated them like uh, essentially ISIS terrorists. Oh, okay. And a whole bunch of teenagers found themselves being essentially jackbooted by Secret Service, FBI, held without their rights. You know, a bunch of very innocent teenagers who were exploring computer networks. This was in the mid to late 90s? Uh, late 80s. Late 80s, okay. And that's what led to the creation of EFF. Okay, which is? Uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation. Okay. It was created by John Gilmar, John Perry Barlow, and Mitch Kapoor. Mitch okay. Kapoor created Lotus 123. Uh, John Gilmore was employee number five at Sun Microsystems. And John Perry Barlow was the lyricist for the Grateful Dead. Oh, okay. Wow. What a, what a, what a group. <laughs> and they kind of collectively were like, we need to write a declaration of independence for the internet. Right. And we need to fight for civil rights. Which was before the internet was even really a thing. Because I think that... The w internet w existed. W w it, it existed, but WWW went live in 1990. So this is even pre that. Well, WW actually was 93 when Tim Berners-Lee published... Okay. When the first like NCSA mosaic started kind of coming alive, the okay. HTTP protocol had been proposed, but there were no browsers. It was all text-based. Right. Um, and so I, at the time, was running one of the largest internet providers in Canada. Okay. But previously, I had been part of the computer security community. So a lot of my friends got arrested in that. Wow. Okay. And I had, uh, before I turned 18, transitioned into doing penetration testing for companies. Okay. So I was kind of smart enough to realize hacking was not a lifetime career I wanted to stay in. Sure. <laughs> right. And so I really cared about civil liberties. I saw what was happening to my friends. And so in I ended up building the largest internet provider in Canada for dial-up. Sold it in 1996. 
And uh, at that time, Phil Zimmerman was being prosecuted for exporting PGP. Right, because they considered the PGP, which is basically the um, encryption, the, the encryption. They considered that munitions, like that's right, uh, like weapons. Yeah, because at the time, uh, only the military had encryption. Um, well, it was actually the math was known, but they created something called the Wasson Era Agreement, which create uh, created this kind of control and treated math as an exportable munition, like exporting nuclear technology. Right. So you could be prosecuted in the United States if you ex- exported. Strong encryption. That's where later my partner in Blockstream, Adam Back, created the T-shirts with encryption algorithms right. and sold them so people could wear munitions yeah, so on it had planes. The, the code on there. That's right. Yeah. Um, now, so we had a thesis after I sold my ISP. I created a company which was if we can make encryption tools as easy as Netscape made browsing the web, maybe we can build privacy into the base layer of the internet. And we had kind of three main tenets. One was anonymous IP browsing. So we invented something called the Freedom Network, okay. which was a precursor to Tor that the Naval Research Laboratory later came out with. Okay. So we ran it. We had it running. Then we tried to develop and roll out electronic cash, anonymous electronic cash. And heading up that development was Dr. Adam Back, right. who I hired to build we, our eCash. Yep. Okay. And then on top of that, we wanted to have private identity. The idea that you could prove you were over 18 without ever revealing your name. Right. And so we said, if we build these three kind of pillars, the internet can actually develop with privacy as the base layer without surveillance capitalism. Right. And unfortunately, we got way ahead of our skis. We grew too fast. Yeah. The dot-com collapse forced us to fire all our researchers, pivot the company. We ended up making it financially successful, but in terms of the social and civic goals that we had to kind of promote privacy in the world. Right. I think we actually failed miserably. Yeah. It seems like it's an uphill battle. Well, starting from the 80s when you did or into the 90s, uh, I would imagine it's an uphill battle because even today, in today's day and age, which has gotten crazy with the dystopian future that we're living in, um, I, even today, a lot of people still don't understand why they even need privacy. And I'm guessing back in the 80s and 90s, it was probably even a much harder sell to try to explain to people why they needed privacy be- beyond, the, beyond the hacker community. Yeah, so it was so funny because... All of our market data and all the market research we tried to do, everything gave us these we really bad signaling mm-hmm. in the sense that we would put 100 people in a room and say, how much do you care about your privacy? And it would score off the charts. Yeah, People were afraid to put credit card. Like, no one was shopping online because Actually, they were afraid true. to put credit cards yeah. on. At this phase, this that's was 1997, true. 98. Yeah. I started an e-commerce business in 2001 at the bottom of the dot-com crash. And so you're right. I remember yeah, even in 2001, people were very afraid to put their credit I card mean, in. You remember we had flus, we had cyber cash, we had all these companies trying yeah. to build alternative digital currencies. They yeah. were all centralized. Yeah. But this was the era when we tried to buy DigiCash out of bankruptcy. So we actually had the cypherpunk ideals and we're like, if we roll out anonymous, show, like show me in, totally di- like David Schoen, private e-cash, it can actually form the commerce engine yeah. for the internet before credit cards were the norm. Yeah. So what you're talking about there is, a, is something I want to dig into a little bit. Um, talking about different versions of 
early versions of cryptocurrency, digital cash, pre-Bitcoin, et cetera. Um, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Austin Hill. We're uh, talking um, from Miami at the Bitcoin 2022 conference, um, talking about the early days of Bitcoin. Um, and so uh, he's, he was there in the beginnings. So we're going to talk about that. I want to talk about... Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people use this fake, this analogy that uh, you know, Bitcoin is MySpace, and this Facebook will come along. So, so such an old argument, but uh, but Bitcoin was not one of the first versions. As a matter of fact, there was earlier versions you worked on. So, I want to talk about that. Um, I want to get into. Um, we'll talk more about this this privacy piece. Um, I want to talk about kind of the the advancements of Bitcoin and kind of where we're at today with some of this new technology development. People think it's like old technology. So we've got a lot to dig into. Again, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. Uh, we're broadcasting from Miami with the Bitcoin 2020 conference. I'll be right back with Austin Hill. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. You are listening to the Mark Moss Show. We are talking about the decentralized revolution that Bitcoin is creating right now, and we're broadcasting from Miami, from South Beach, Miami, for the Bitcoin 22 conference. It's supposed to be about 40,000 people showing up. It's amazing. And I'm sitting down um, with Austin Hill right now talking about the early days of Bitcoin. I mean, we have 40,000 people here, and for sure, there's no way, well, maybe you could have but predicted there could have been 40,000 people here at this point. Uh, even I was before the break, I was talking how I started an e-commerce business in 2001 and I it, there was no Shopify there was no like WordPress like it wasn't easy and um, I went to these brands and I said hey I built this website I want to sell your products on my website and they laughed at me no one would ever buy anything online they told me and that was in 2001 and so we're talking here a decade earlier that you were working on this stuff so um, the Bitcoin is uh, MySpace and the Facebook will come out kind of analogy uh, but Bitcoin was not the first version of this so you were talking about uh, DigiCash and Chom what he was working on stuff so give us some of that background of versions that you were working on or seeing that kind of led into this Bitcoin yeah I mean not only we but there was a community that actually emerged out of the cypherpunk mailing list called coderpunks okay and they created the uh financial now, now was the mailing list like a physical mail like snail mail no, no it was online mailing so, list. so it was email at that time yeah. okay total mail list, mailing list and usenet use groups if you remember back in the day there was like they, those were essentially like the message boards sure and ntp yeah so there was well, i wasn't on them at the time so i don't know i yeah. didn't i didn't really get on the internet until probably 95, 96 is probably by the time I got on the internet. They were still there. They may not have been used as much, but so you had uh, Usenet, uh, which was like a broadcast peer-to-peer kind of medium, not peer-to-peer so much as broadcast medium for news groups, okay. which was essentially message boards back in the day. And you had mailing lists. And so there was cypherpunks and then uh, offshoot of that was coderpunks. Okay. And that's where the adage of cypherpunks write code because the manifesto that Tim May wrote, who was one of the co-founders of the cypherpunk movement, was, we believe that the tools of cryptography are where we'll find our freedom. Yeah, uh, There's this new world we can build in cyberspace where we exist beyond the reach of government, beyond the reach of authoritarian uh, companies, you know. Is that is that what it's always been? Like, the, 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 you know, the pilgrims left for America to get away from the tyranny of the government. Like, we people moved west in the United States. They moved to the West Coast to kind of start this new frontier. Uh, people go into the sea, and now people go into the internet. And, like, we're always trying to get away, kind of keep our sovereignty or autonomy from the state. Certainly a lot of the underpinnings in the cypherpunk movement was changing the balance of power. Exactly. The balance of power. That's a key piece. That's yeah. what Bitcoin does. It wasn't so much that we don't need this or that this is entirely bad. It was just if all the power is concentrated in the hands of the few, 
at the expense of the many, yeah. then you have this imbalance of power where you will always become victim to mass, yeah. you know, the- mass thought, uh, mass programming, um, you know, waves of popular opinion, and your rights as a self-sovereign individual, whether it's property rights, freedom of speech, the rights to express yourself, should not be dependent on the whim of the yeah, it's a it's popular. a it's a difference of being a customer who's valued and given value back, or a serf, or a subject who's just treated or how, an asset, or an a, or an asset which that's what, bought and sold. You know, a serf, like a slave as a commodity. Sure, sure. So so it's either like hey the think of it like uh, going to Disney World. I pay one flat fee, and I can choose to pay that fee. Now, there's cheaper amusement parks I can go to if I want to pay less, but they treat me as a customer. They value me. They want my business uh, versus the state that could just take whatever they want without asking. So it's it's it's, it's it changing the balance of power shifts them to kind of take that more of a relationship. I mean, we ran this famous ad when we thought we were flying too high, too close to the sun. <laughs> we had raised too much venture capital, but yeah. we ran this national ad campaign that had children with barcodes on their forehead. Mm. <laughs> that says, I am not a piece of your inventory. Right. On the internet, yeah. I am in control. My data belongs to me. Yeah. You will not buy me and sell me. And embedded in the barcodes, we actually had a hidden cryptographic message, yeah. which got a lot of attention. Um, it was great conceptual, great ad agency, total waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it was just too early then. Well, right? no, we expected all these privacy signaling that we got when everyone's... So I famously made this quote at a conference that was kind of repurposed by a bunch of cryptography people. You get 100 people in a room and you ask them if they care about their privacy, 98% will say yes. Take the same 100 people, two weeks later, stick them in a different room and ask them if they want a year's free... Uh, McDonald's in exchange for a DNA sample, and 97 will say yes. Yeah. I, because it's so ephemeral that people make bad decisions about their privacy every day. Yeah. Because the consequences of making a bad decision are so postponed. Yeah. And it requires such a level of technical nuance, understanding, sure, consequences that people, it's like people who say, I care about the environment, but I'm going to buy an SUV because yeah. they opt for convenience. Well, oh. so the the key word that you said there is nuance. And today, people are not able, the majority of people aren't able to, and I just did it myself, the majority of people aren't able to pick up on that nuance. And that is what changes everything. So to your point, when you say, do you care about privacy? They're like, well, I have nothing to hide, I guess, right? Then you're like, okay, give me your phone. Let me let me go through your phone. They're like, no. So if you kind of put in that, like, you know, like, let me let me browse through your history and see what you got. And then they wouldn't want that. And then, you know, they kind of have to see that that, that example there. Um, and, then, and then even nuance back to the SUV and the climate, like, I love the environment more than anybody. I surf. I'm in the water every day. I'm in the mountains snowboarding all winter long. I want it to be preserved and clean for my kids. But I drive a truck. So do I. But I've done the research and I have feelings about certain things, but there is nuance there. And I understand the consequences. I understand the cost. I understand the actual net effect. Yeah. I've actually, I'm very, very comfortable saying, okay, you know, where I live, I moved to Latin America from Canada and I'm like, okay, I support green grids. I support smart grids. I support all these things, but they don't exist. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, (laughs) it sounds good if they don't exist. So, um, so then you're working on, uh, you're working on this, uh, you worked on previous versions of Bitcoin. That's right. Uh, and I then went into venture capital. Okay. Where I invested in a bunch of startups above and beyond just crypto and security. Um, that was in Canada. Created like a Canadian version of Y Combinator. 
um, which is a very famous startup accelerator in San Francisco. And uh, right around 2011, a bunch of friends started messaging me saying, Austin, you got to pay attention to Bitcoin. Okay. And at the time, I had been retired and I was trying to become a professional poker player. Okay. Very arrogantly. Yeah. <laughs> Playing way above my skill level and having to humble myself. Yeah. Um, and I basically messaged them back and they were like, Austin, this eCash thing is finally real. And I wrote them back saying, basically go F yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I just spent $8 million and 10 years trying to do this. I'm glad someone figured it out. Yeah. But I'm not ready to look at it. So, so, so let's talk about that. I want to, um, because to the point that we're making, it, it, Bitcoin wasn't the MySpace. Bitcoin was many iterations later, and they solved uh, a problem that couldn't be solved. I think that was kind of the key piece that differentiated it. So I want to I talk about that. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show. Uh, I'm broadcasting from South Beach, Miami, for the Bitcoin 2022 conference. I'm here sitting down with Austin Hill, early, early, early Bitcoin cypherpunk. Uh, we're talking about some of the early days, and, and uh, we're going to talk about more when we get back about how Bitcoin wasn't the first version what really changed uh, from the earlier versions. And then we'll bring it all the way back to the forward to here are 40,000 people in Miami. You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, sitting down with Austin Hill. Got a lot more to go over. Do not go away. I'll be right back. All right, welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about the decentralized revolution. We're talking about why 40,000 people are in South Beach, Miami right now for the Bitcoin 2022 conference. I'm sitting down with Austin Hill. He's an early, early, early Bitcoin adopter, programmer, investor. And we were talking about the early days. So before the break, um, you were talking about different versions of uh, digital cash, whatever it was called, cryptocurrency. I don't know what it was called at that time, but it, but that led up to Bitcoin. But Bitcoin solved a problem that the double spend problem, I guess. That was that the big differentiator. Well, uh, double spend had been solved before with Show Me an eCash. Okay, but it depended on a centralized server. Oh, gotcha. Okay, and so uh, there were versions of the DigiCash Mint, and we all played around with DigiCash. Um, David Shome and DigiCash went bankrupt, and it was actually patents that prevented anyone else from innovating. Okay, so patents held by RSA and patents held by DigiCash ended up blocking most of the cypherpunks who wanted to build things open source and free because they were worried about patent infringement okay. and getting sued. So the cypherpunks were incredibly frustrated. There were various forms of algorithms that were beginning to develop. Elliptic curve, uh, you know, other mechanisms. There were some startups that actually tried to do this. Brame Cohen, who invented BitTorrent, okay. tried with Mojo Nation. Okay. Incredible idea. It was a way to pay for content and build peer-to-peer -peer networking. And it was built with the eye to replace Napster. It ended up becoming BitTorrent. But they actually had a previous startup that had payments, content creators, e-commerce, everything called Mojo Nation. There were other attempts to do this. Um, Adam Back had invented Hashcash, which was a way of developing digital scarcity in the form of postage stamps for, for spam abuse. Yeah, for email. Right. That's when we hired him in 1998 to come work for us and run our eCash lab. Okay. Um, so there were a bunch of... So that, was a, that was a decade before Bitcoin. Yes. Yeah. Um, we collaborated a lot with Nick Szabo. We worked with all these people. They were our friends. They were our community. And we were right. all trying to figure out how do we build the perfect version of eCash. Right. Um, a lot of the cypherpunks missed or miscategorized Bitcoin early. 
because it was so far different from the vision that we had. Mm, got it. Which was totally blinded, privacy-enabled e-cash. By moving to a totally decentralized and solving the problem of double spend in a totally different orthogonal way, which was we'll give everyone a copy of the ledger and we'll solve the Byzantine general's problem, right. which for listeners was a very famous problem in computer science, which very kind of dumbed down, which is if you assume that all your communication lines are untrustworthy and you want to coordinate with multiple parties around the world, how do you end up building trust when you can't trust what you send them? This was known as the Byzantine general's problem, which right. was based off this kind of idea of if a bunch of lieutenants are trying to attack a city right. and you want to coordinate them all to attack at the same time, but you can't trust your communication method, yep. how do you actually coordinate? And it was a famous problem in computer science that Satoshi famously solved in a very kind of weird way. He said, what if we assume everything is public, right. except some discoordination, but every 10 minutes, we force everyone to get on the same page. Right. And part of what prevented that from being working was something called inflation control around digital scarcity. So we had hash cash. One of the things that Adam Back had not invented was a way to deal with inflation control. So essentially, people with the most amount of money to spend on CPUs could essentially inflate the economy and outperform everyone else. Right. Satoshi invented something called the difficulty adjustment, right. which forced everyone to come back to an even keel. Yeah. So Bitcoin every two weeks says, we're going to monitor the health of the network and we're going to reset programmatically mm -hmm. in an openly and fair way yeah, for the for the listeners, um, the difficulty adjustment is one of the very many things that are just genius in Bitcoin. And so, what happens is, like with gold, for example, um, gold has a very low stock to flow ratio, meaning the inflation rate, the amount of new gold produced, is very low com compared to the stock of existing gold. But if gold, let's say right now it's at nineteen hundred dollars an ounce, let's say it went to ten thousand dollars an ounce, a lot of people would go mine gold, and more gold would come out of the ground. But with Bitcoin, if more people go mine Bitcoin, it doesn't bring any more Bitcoin out. They just have to split the Bitcoin. <laughs> amongst all those new players and uh, new players can come on or like what happened last year with China where they knocked off 60% of the mining power then the difficulty adjustment adjusted and then everything got back to normal well and that's what makes Bitcoin so perfectly at least under every examination by true economists even true gold bugs who approach it honestly can say this is the best form of sound money the best form of non-sovereign money that's right. ever existed yeah because even when you start getting into like new technology, singularity tech, there are new singularity tech stuff I see every day in my venture capital investment, liquid plasma drilling, uh, autonomous drone drilling that yeah. can go down and it'll be able to extract gold at prices and a cost basis that no one's ever even imagined, like a thousand X cheaper than today. And so when people are able to extract gold at a thousand X cheaper than today, we have no idea actually how much gold is actually in the planet. Right. And if they start releasing, we end up with a De Beers diamond situation where a few cartels can totally control the gold market. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you end up with a very centralized, essentially, you know, central bank approach to even gold. Yeah. Same with asteroid mining. So yeah. whatever ends up being that trigger, whether it's the price increase 
evolving technologies, space exploration. Gold is totally unpredictable. Right. But Bitcoin we know. is totally transparent. We know about that, yeah. So let's uh, let's let's fast forward a little bit because we don't have all the time in the world as as as, uh, as fun as it would be to kind of go back all the way through the pro- all the way through that. Um, so you were working on the early versions um, a decade before Bitcoin came around. Uh, Bitcoin, to your point, Satoshi Nakamoto solved this uh, general's problem. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of move forward to kind of where we're at today. I know you're working on a bunch of new technology that's kind of still kind of in that space. Before we do. Um, so uh, I was just interviewed recently, uh, two weeks ago, I think, at the Unconfiscatable Conference. Yeah. You were there as well. Um, I was interviewed for a, a documentary they're doing about who is Satoshi Nakamoto. And uh, what's your answer? Um, so I have three very firm beliefs on this. Good. Um, a, whoever he, she, or they are, they have earned, deserve. And we should all respect their pseudonymity because we have absolutely no idea of the personal risks, consequences, and or uh, long-term effects that penetrating that pseudonymity by speculation and Satoshi hunting may provide. That's a good, good answer, yeah. Um, Hal Finney's wife was dealing with a kidnap request, uh, threats to her children, and bomb threats wow. to her house as Hal Finney was dying. Wow. Where and for, for the listeners, Hal Finney was one of the known early um, developers on, on Bitcoin. And many people suspected he was Satoshi right. secretly. Right, which is why he was getting the bomb threats. <laughs> Hal was a friend of ours. We worked with him at PGP. He yeah. was a known cypherpunk. He was the first person to publicly receive. He ended up developing ALS. Yeah. So he was in a wheelchair trying to take care of his family and yeah. enjoying his last days. Yeah. And he had to deal with people threatening to kidnap his kids. Yeah, it's crazy. Unless he paid a Bitcoin ransom. Yeah. So... Just based off that, second issue, early people who are in the community, there's a problem that David Schoen posted called the dining cryptographer's problem, mm-hmm. which is if enough people know part of a secret, they can collaborate to hurt the secret holder. Sure. So we early cypherpunks all made a pledge to each other that we would never do anything. We would not compare yeah. and speculate to invade Satoshi's privacy. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I mean, and, and you're, you're working on technology to preserve privacy. <laughs> so, of course, why would you want to go and work against that privacy? Uh, you're listening to The Mark Ma Show. Uh, we're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about the early, early, early days of Bitcoin and who is Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm joined by Austin Hill. We are in Miami for the Bitcoin 2022 conference. There's 40,000 people here coming to talk about Bitcoin, fixing the money, fixing the world. We're talking about the early days with Austin Hill. Uh, when we come back, we'll finish talking about Satoshi Nakamoto, and then I want to jump forward and talk about some of the new technologies that are being built on Bitcoin. Be right back. All right, welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Ma Show. We're talking about the the intersection of politics, finance, and technology, which, of course, is Bitcoin. We're talking about the decentralized revolution and how it is changing the world. We're talking uh, from Miami Beach, where the Bitcoin conference is here with 40,000 people, and I am sitting down with one of the early adopters of Bitcoin, Austin Hill. We were talking about before the break, um, the early days, even a decade before Bitcoin was invented and how they were working on it, what it solved. But uh, Austin, before the break, you were just kind of finishing up a couple points on Satoshi Nakamoto. One, we should um, we should probably just preserve his privacy, whoever it was, not trying to hunt him down because it causes harm to other people. And I think you had some more points that you want to make there. Yeah. I mean, the second was um, those of us who were in the early community kind of felt uh, an allegiance or an ideal commitment to 
if we really wanted to, maybe we could break this person's privacy, but why were we always in this, right? Like for, for privacy <laughs> and for self-sovereignty yeah. and for the economic freedom that comes with non-sovereign money. Yeah. So what are we doing trying to compare notes to invade anyone's? It may be someone in the room. It may be one of our friends. Right. It may be there were a bunch of cypherpunks who died. It may be someone who passed away. And there, most likely was. But. There, there are there are suspect lists that are longer and more well known than's ever been discussed. Yeah, but we agreed amongst ourselves. Let's not compare. Let's not contrast. Let's not add to this idea of Satoshi hunting. Yeah, and the last one is the most actually important one. Um, in the idea of decentralization, open source. Every open source project has faced the idea of how do you develop a leaderless Hydra head? Yeah, that, and that's a big piece. L uh, Linux had Linus Torvald. It had a bunch of lieutenants, including people like Rusty Russell, who built Lightning for Blockstream. Okay. Incredible developer. He spent 20 years on the front line of trying to defend Linus and uh, you know some of his very unique personality and strongly held opinions on how to build Linux. But as long as there is a central head, every single one of these systems are weaker. Yeah. Because there is someone you can advocate against. There is someone who can influence a community. And so if you think about it in the terms of religion, you can be agnostic or whatever, just historically. Um, a religion where people can adopt the name of the figurehead of the religion. Buddha, Mohammed, Jesus, uh, you know, Taoist, Joseph Smith for Mormons, whatever. Right. When people can interpret them after they're dead and say, I speak for this person. Sure. And you have a leader-based leader organization that has a hierarchies of organization. People love hierarchies of organization because they love to be told what to do. And any single structure like that makes it very, very easy to find an attack surface sure. where you can weaken the underlining org. Yeah. By Bitcoin remaining flat and saying we are leaderless, it comes at a cost. There is no spokesperson for Bitcoin. There are people who stand up and say, I speak for Bitcoin who are horrible for Bitcoin and yeah. actually promoting coins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that cost is worth it because with no leader, there is no central point of attack. And every other coin who has tried to replace Bitcoin is weaker, less than, and will never achieve its goals Yeah, because it is centralized, it has a leader, and it has a group that more often than not has stolen from consumers. Yeah to fund their marketing budget to promote their centralized yeah. structure. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, with Bitcoin, we call it, you, you reference religion, it's like the, the immaculate conception. Uh, yep. It was just created. We don't know who created it. We don't need to know. Um, and it's better that we don't ever find out because to your point, I agree with you. We don't want a leader. We can see, you know, Ethereum with Vitalik Buterin and, or Charles Hoskinson and how that works. And we definitely don't want somebody like that. And, and even the attack vectors, like you said, the attack surface, you know, someone to squeeze the top if, if need be, whatever. So uh, all good things. I agree with you on that. Um, moving forward, let's, uh, we run out of time here. Um, so a lot of times people think that Bitcoin is old tech. Um, and you know, now there's all this new tech and they have all this smart stuff built into the, into the base layer chain. Um, and maybe they just, they have this misunderstanding of how technology works and how it works in layers and how it scales. So talk to us about some of the stuff that's happening today on Bitcoin, you, you know, from being with Blockstream and lightning labs and stuff, obviously a lot of stuff being built on lightning labs. Um, are we at a point now of building technology that you maybe didn't think we'd get to? And are you encouraged by that? Or what do you think? 
I am state of that today. I'm an endless optimist when it comes to technology. Um, I always see, you know, glass half full versus glass half empty, right? Um, but I am still surprised at how much work has been done by the community and actually how fertile a ground that people are now planting seeds in. Yeah. I was just in El Salvador. I was blown away by the excitement, the changes that are occurring there. Um, I think it's awesome. It, yeah. It's so hard for people in traditionally North America because I think we live such a privileged life mm -hmm. and we're so used to, frankly, this kind of like terminal uniqueness. And I refer to terminal uniqueness as terminal disease because we somehow believe we're so unique in the world. Yeah. And, but we are in fact so privileged when you actually look at the countries who are actually su suffering from being unbanked, sure. suffering from no credit, suffering from, you know, the only credit market existing to be gangs and like overnight lenders and like loan sharks. Yeah. Um, you know, the average loan size in some of these countries is $500 and you pay 30% a week interest. Yeah. And that is the only loan you'll ever get yeah. because banks refuse to even open an account. Yeah, it's insane. And so here we're like, you can be an 18 year old student who just has a name and you get $2,000 in credit. Yeah, or 200,000 to go to college. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like we live such a privileged life that we're actually sheltered, I yeah. think, from how powerful the changes in Bitcoin are occurring. And so Bitcoin, I think, through better engineering, has actually built a platform that will and is going to change the world. And people don't see it because good engineering takes time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The best analogy I give to this is if you're waiting every day in line trying to get to New York City from New Jersey, and you're just you're tired of traffic, and someone comes to you and says, don't wait in traffic anymore. This weekend, we designed a three-layer bridge, and we built it last week. Yeah. <laughs> Come drive on layer two. Yeah. I, as a driver, would be a little suspicious if they built that in a week. Is that really something I really want to trust my car weight on? Yeah. Right? Like, maybe I really want to wait until there's safety testing, civic engineering, right. safety engineering, stress metal tests. Uh, like, there's a reason why some of these infrastructure projects take time. Yeah. I'm not going to hop on a plane that says we have the cheapest tickets to Hawaii while they strapped, like, fold-out chairs yeah. to the wing. <laughs> exactly. Right? Like, yeah. And so many of the shit coins and the altcoins have taken that approach. Move fast and break things. We don't care about safety. Yeah. We're all about innovation. And we're willing to do it at the cost of people's money. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest risks that Bitcoin has actually have to suffer is because it deals with the reputational damage of all these other experimenters who are taking risks that Bitcoin chose not to take. Right. Like there is a reason we do not give power users who buy electricity from a nuclear power station, control and decision-making on how the nuclear power station is made. Yeah. There are nuclear engineers yeah. who actually build nuclear power stations who deserve to actually design the safety protocols. Right. You as a customer should have no right or no say in how that nuclear yeah, power plant know, runs. I don't know anything about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But we didn't take that approach with so many of these shit coins. So yeah. people create these DAOs, they create these weird crypto, they use all these things to invite usually people to lose their money. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Also, you think about like, um, you know, 
back to kind of these leader, uh, not leaderless, but having leaders platforms. So like Vitalik Buterin goes back and changes the monetary issuance of Ethereum. And imagine if, uh, you know, they changed the TCP IP protocol with trillions of websites built on that, applications built, and then they just change the protocol and it doesn't work. Or, or gravity changed and all these buildings come falling down. It's a great point. And that's one of the benefits of Bitcoin that nobody can control that. Um, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. I'm sitting down with Austin Hill talking about the history of Bitcoin. And it's important to talk about it today because we're here in Miami with 40,000 people for the Bitcoin conference. And that's what I got for you today. Thanks so much for listening.